Amen. Thank you, Ashley. So good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer. It is good to see you this morning. Uh, what Ashley just said is right. This is uh, the first Sunday of October 2008. 2008 is when we launched the first public worship services of this church. So uh, if you're into such things, today would be our 13th birthday, I guess. So that's a neat thing. Uh, 13 years, it's been a joy. I look forward to uh, many, many more in the future. So glad to be with you this morning. Um, we are in the middle of a series from the prophet Isaiah. And so we're going to continue with that. And uh, we're supposed to be making our way. I just keep getting caught by all of the beautiful words and beautiful passages in Isaiah and can't seem to get, can't seem to make much progress. So again, this morning we're going to be in chapter 41 uh, and then moving ahead to chapter 43. And these will be, uh, the, chapter 43 particularly will be a, a, probably a familiar passage of scripture for many of you. But let's read together from these two places uh, here in this Chapter 41 to 44 is really this section thematically in Isaiah's prophecy. So let's read beginning in chapter 41, verse 17. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, it's printed for you. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you're at home, welcome. It'll be on your screen as well as I read. And so let's read God's word together. The prophet says this, When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and though the rivers and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, for the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. So seven times in Isaiah chapter 41 through 43, which I said is kind of a block thematically, seven times in that section God says, fear not. So it's really a, a passage, or really a kind of an extended passage in the Old Testament scriptures about fear. But here's my question this morning. What if, even though God keeps saying it to you over and over again, if you're parenting, do you ever say things to your kids over and over again that they seem to not be able to hear? I'm getting like double thumbs up from the back of the room from, from some you got to say things over and over again. Sometimes we hear things over and over again, but it doesn't seem to make any difference. What if when you hear God saying to you over and over again, do not be afraid, you can't help being afraid? What if you've tried everything and you just can't seem to stop being anxious, even though you know the scripture says, don't be anxious? Or let me ask it this way. How do you repent of fear? How do you repent of living with an anxious heart? Because fear is a spiritual problem. But it is not just a spiritual problem. It can also be 
legitimately a physical or even a biochemical problem. You can be doing the spiritual work and still be stuck in anxiety, still be stuck in fear. But here's the thing, I'm a pastor, and this is a sermon, and so we have a very narrow focus this morning, and our focus is to talk about how to be continually repenting of the spiritual causes of fear. You need to be doing all the other stuff as well, but you need to go to a doctor for those things or, or a, a therapist for some of those other things. Here this morning, what I'm after is just to say, as we are working to obey God, when he commands us to not be afraid, there's spiritual work for us to do. So be doing all of that other work, but let's make sure to be doing the spiritual work as well, right? And I'm on a mission this morning. This is a different kind of sermon. There's not a whole lot of illustrations. I don't have a lot of that. I just want to go right at, I want to go right at that problem spiritually of fear. And so bear with me as we kind of just like laser focus in on that, okay? Because there's work that we need to do that this passage helps us with. John Owen, he said this, he said, the hardest thing in the world is to believe that God loves us. However, we commit our greatest sin when we refuse to believe that he loves us. Fear is a symptom of spiritual disease. If you're afraid, it means there's a deeper spiritual problem. And the problem is unbelief, the problem of unbelief. Fear is just the symptom. Unbelief is the real disease. It's the spiritual cause of fear. And unbelief, if you want to boil it down, we, we define it different ways at different times. But this morning, we just want to say unbelief means thinking wrong thoughts about God. Believing things about him that aren't true or failing to believe what he has clearly said is true not knowing and believing not relying on God's love for you and so the spiritual work of battling fear that this passage helps us with is to be identifying and repenting of your unbelief and you do that by taking your heart and, t and talking to it instead of listening to your heart you address you talk to your heart instead of listening you, you address your doubts with what you know to be true about God. That's, what, that's what's modeled for us in chapter 35, which we read uh, as, a, as a reading of the law this morning, where he says, strengthen weak hands, make firm feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God. Do you see what he's doing there? He's saying, you gotta, you gotta speak into the, the unbelief of your heart. You, you have to speak the truth about God to your heart instead of listening to your doubts. And when you can't do that on your own, because the anxiety is too much, the fear is too great, then you need to get to church and you need to hear the truth about God or you need to get around some other people and let them speak to your heart and remind you of the truth. But that's the way you work on fear in your life. And this is what Isaiah is laboring to do here for us. And there are two things in this block, in this 41 through 44, there are two things. He keeps, he keeps saying, don't be afraid. He keeps naming our fear. And then what he does is he's trying to He's trying to remedy that fear by reminding us of who God really is. He's trying to correct the wrong thoughts we might have fallen into about God. That might be the, re the reason why we're so afraid. And there are two arguments in particular that he makes over and over again in this whole section. The first, against unbelief. The first, he says, is fear not because God is with you, right? That's Isaiah 41.10, 41.13, 14. Here in Isaiah 43, verse 5, you see it. We talked about that last week. The other argument he makes that keep, he keeps making over and over again, so it must be significant, is he says, fear not, because God is a redeemer. And that's Isaiah 43, verse 1. If you go down in your Bible, again in verse 14, but it's also in chapter 41, 14, 44, 6, 44, 22, 23, and 24. So by my count, at least seven times in these four chapters, 
Isaiah reminds us that God is a redeemer, so it must be important. To know God as a redeemer must be important. So here's the thing. I didn't plan it this way, but on Redeemer's 13th anniversary, we're going to talk about God the Redeemer. Okay? Because we named this church Redeemer because we wanted to be a church that was pointing away from itself to the one who truly saves. He is a Redeemer. And God the Redeemer, that the way that that corrects the false ideas about God that you might be living with there are really two things uh, that you see here, and um, I want you to want you to work with your heart with me uh, in these two ways. There is a promise that is made to us here that can lead to the peace of the gospel, and then there's theology. God the Redeemer is a promise that leads to peace, but it also is a theology that leads to a certain psychology. It's the theology that leads to the psychology of the gospel. I'll explain what I mean by that as we go along. So there's the peace that leads to, the promise that leads to peace, and there's theology that leads to the psychology of the gospel. Let's look at both of those things. The first is that this promise, or that, that God is a, God the Redeemer is a promise that leads to the peace of the gospel. The Bible actually uses a <clears throat> excuse me, a cluster of words to describe the opposite of fear. So you might peace, joy, <clears throat> contentment, waiting. All of, those, all of those are synonyms. We're going to use peace for the consonants because it's catchy. It sounds good. And that's when you're you know, preparing a sermon, you want to say what sounds good. And so we're going, to, we're going to use the word peace, the promise that leads to peace, because it's sing-songy, and maybe you'll remember. Now, God's command is clear, and it is a command. Look there in verse 1 again, fear not. And again in verse 5, he says it again. So I want to say clearly, it is a sin to be afraid when God tells us to not be afraid. Can I say that again? It is a sin, it's violating of God's command to, to be afraid when God tells us not to be afraid. Just as it is a sin to not be afraid when he demands that we be afraid. Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13, for example, he says, Do not fear what they fear, nor, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, let him, let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And what we're, being, what we're being shown here is how messed up we are. We are afraid when we shouldn't be, and we aren't afraid when we should be. We fear things we have no reason to fear. We do not fear God who we should fear. We have a problem with fear. You with me? Tracking? And Isaiah is trying to get us right by helping us not fear our circumstances, but to fear God instead. But it's the method that I want to call our attention to because he's, he's trying to displace our fear and to make us right, but he does it by making promises, which is interesting. He does it by making promises and not by making threats. And that tells us something important about the way our hearts work, where the power for change comes from. I'm becoming aware, and, uh, and others in my life are helping me become aware of the way that I, have, I can fall into parenting my kids through threat, by making threats. And I'm also becoming aware of the way that it shuts my kids down because threats cause fear, but it's the wrong kind of fear. Threats shut us down emotionally. They, they paralyze us. A threat can compel obedience, but it will be the wrong kind of obedience, not obedience from a changed heart, not obedience from a heart of love and gratitude. Only grace, only grace can reach all the way down into the heart and change someone from the inside out. And so we get grace here in the form of promises. Israel had sinned. And now they're going off in exile. God is sending them away into a foreign land. But 
you see here the way he responds to that reality. He responds by making promises, not threats. He tells them what he will do. He doesn't harp on their failures and what they could do to make it right. 19 times, if you go on in chapter 43, 19 times the prophet describes what God will do for his people. There are 19 things. God says, I'll do this, I'll do this. It highlights all of God's action 19 times, only once. Verses 19, only once does he tell them what they should do. Christianity's grace. God does everything, which leaves you and I with only one thing to do. Do you know what that is? To not be afraid. That's the only thing he tells them. He, doesn't, he says, you don't have to do anything else. Just don't be afraid, because he knows that that is, that that is the, the source of all kinds of, of good things in our lives, if we can live unafraid. Now, the psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Think about that. Did you hear that? With you there's forgiveness, therefore you are feared. So the only way to live unafraid is to know that you are loved and accepted by God unconditionally. That he doesn't love you just the way you are. He loves you despite the way you are for Jesus' sake. See, the fear of God is the antidote to all the other fear. But fearing God, according to Psalm 130, is living from God's heart, not for his heart. Dane Ortland said it that way. Sinclair Ferguson said it's the difference between if and therefore. So living for God's heart, if you're a person who's living for God's heart, it turns all of life into an if. There's this contingency that hangs over everything that's happening in your life and all of your responses. You say things or you think things like, God will love and bless me if. You know, it's all going to be okay if. God will come through if. And it's this huge cosmic if, that this contingency that hangs over your, over your life. That's living for God's heart. But living from God's heart makes all of life a therefore. It's a response to something God's already done. God loves me, therefore I will love right? God is my God. Therefore, I will be his. God has promised to be with me and help me. Therefore, I won't be afraid. If, if creates conditions, therefore introduces implications. And you won't stop being afraid until you fear God. And you won't fear God until you stop shaking. When you think about him, you stop shaking and you start smiling instead. Because Psalm 130 says that's the real fear of the Lord. The real fear of the Lord is to, is to shake at first, but then to see his great love for you and stop shaking and start smiling when you think about him. In Hosea this week, we read it, described Israel's repentance. It was really beautiful, chapter 3, as a return to God's goodness. He says, then they shall, right, the, the, like the restoration of the relationship between God and the people, described, he says, they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness. And so if you're afraid, you need to come to his goodness. But here's what I want to say. The problem is not with God. He has clearly made known his heart. He's clearly made known his goodness and his kindness to us. But do you believe? When you're anxious or afraid, the spiritual work that you do is to fight for faith until it starts to make some difference. You remind yourself over and over again, I live under promise, not threat. And you come back to his goodness. You keep coming back to his goodness because your heart is prone to wander off away from his goodness. You keep coming back again and again. And that leads to the second consideration from this text, which is what exactly is the promise that God is making here? Okay, if we're being led by promises, not threats, well, what is the promise? And it would be easy for us to misread this. So let's look again in chapter 43 at verses 2 and 3, and I want you to see. 
He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Now, let's be clear. God does not say here, don't be afraid. I'll lead you around the flood and the fire. I'll keep you away. You know, I'll keep all the scary stuff away from you. God never promises to lead us around flood and fire. On the contrary, he leads through flood and fire, and he promises to be with us and to build peace and joy and faith in us through the experience so that we can be in the midst of that and be unafraid, even as the waters rise, even as the heat starts to get turned up. So in 1 Peter, it says this, says, Peter writes, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's a reminder, we're not, as Ashley said, we're not in heaven yet. We still live in a world that has been ruined by sin. So fiery trial, bad news, okay? I know you came for good news this morning. Here's the bad news. Fiery trial is the rule, not the exception of life. You can get into all kinds of trouble if you think otherwise. Flood and fire are bound to come. And when they do, the key is to not think something is wrong or to, to lapse into this idea that you've done something wrong. Because immaterial secularism, which is the air we breathe in our culture, suffering is weird. It has no meaning. It's inconvenient. It's an interruption. And typically there's somebody to blame, which is why we're all so angry. Because, we, because life's not going the way we think it should, and we don't have categories culturally to just know it's a fallen world. It's, of course it's going to go that way. And so when it does, we get angry and we look for who to blame so that we can put it at their feet and then cancel them or whatever, whatever we do. But according to the Bible, see, the Bible has a much different approach. It says, no, these times in life, they're inevitable. They're painful, but they can also be redeemed. And so as you read, it's striking God actually leads into flood and fire. He doesn't spare us. He doesn't come after we've gotten into trouble. In Psalm 23, he is the shepherd who leads me in paths of righteousness. That's verse 3. Do you remember what verse 4 is in Psalm, 120, in Psalm 23? He is the shepherd who leads me in paths of righteousness, and those paths that he leads me on go through valleys of deep darkness and death. Not around them. So, let's do some good theology here. You can't assume your bad circumstances mean God is punishing you. It may be his way of beautifying you, of making you more resilient, giving you more faith and joy and hope. But also, you can't assume your good circumstances mean God is pleased with you. It may be his way of judging you. And trying to wake you up to your spiritual condition. And this is why Peter says, don't be surprised. Actually, what he goes on to say is rejoice. Rejoice in fiery trials. Rejoice because God is going to use the flood and the fire to make you stronger, to make you more beautiful. So the promise is not, with God there will be no flood. Don't you wish that was the promise? We could just all go home and it'd be okay, right? Like, whew, good. With God there is no flood. No, what's the promise? Look at it again, verse 1. When you pass through the waters, you say it. I'll be with you. When we confess in the creed, which we'll do just in just a bit, we say the line that Jesus descended into hell. And people always get tripped up. They're like, what in the world does that mean? You know, what, what is going on there? Well, here's the way I would put it to you. In the moment when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was hell. 
That was hell, the crown of thorns, the nails, the pain, the shame, the nakedness, the vulnerability. None of that was the real suffering of the cross. The real pain in his suffering, the real pain in all suffering is the pain underneath it of feeling abandoned by God. To think, God has left me. All the mistakes I've made are finally catching up to me. I know I've deserved this all along, and here it is. It's finally happening, what I, what I know should have happened a long time ago. And so here, here's the gospel promise. If your faith is in Jesus, here's what we believe. Christians say, no, Jesus actually really lost the Father's love in his suffering. He was forsaken. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? He cried out, God was not there, because he had taken upon himself our sins. But that means... If he has taken upon himself your sins and borne the penalty of those sins and endured the wrath of God for those sins, that means that when you suffer, even in your suffering, you can now not be separated from God's love. He may discipline you in your suffering, but he will never abandon you. And the people who believe that are actually, they have a different experience of suffering. They're actually driven deeper into his love by their suffering. It turns suffering into something that purifies you. It becomes a, a, um, a furnace that burns away all of the impurities and the ugly parts and brings out even more of your beauty. So the promise, I will be with you. It's a good one, right? You with me? It feels kind of, everybody, are we awake this morning? Everybody here? We good? Okay, yeah? I don't know. I know, I mean, all the men are like, 24, 36 hours without my wife, you know? Running on fumes. I can feel it. This promise, I'll be with you, is very powerful. It can do some things. It leads to peace. It can settle you. If you settle the question of God's love for you when the waters rise, then you can actually see what can happen is the waters begin to rise, but you don't feel unloved. And if that's true, well, then you can go through the waters and not be overwhelmed. And that's, see, that's the promise. He doesn't say, I'm going to take you around the waters. He's saying, I'm going to turn you into a kind of person that when you go through the waters, you can go through it and not be overwhelmed by it. See, you can, you can go through it and not, be, and not lose your composure because there's something in you. And the me metaphor I would use for you is like a buoy. You're being buoyed by all of the inner resources that you have, faith and peace and all of the stuff inside, so that you can go through it and not be overwhelmed, not become, begin to drown as the waves crash over you. Or you can pass through the fire, and it says, and not be burned. You can be in the fire, but not on fire. Isn't that, that's a neat metaphor, right? You can be in the fire but not on fire because this promise that God makes to you has given you such inner joy and hope that it makes you fireproof. Like you can live fireproof, which is why Paul says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus for us. So when you know that nothing can separate you from his love, it makes you a person who's able to push in to the hardest times and the hardest parts of life and not only endure them, but actually overcome. That's the promise. So there's a promise that leads to peace. Do you see it? Secondly, there's theology that leads to the psychology of the gospel, and that's borrowing a line from Sinclair Ferguson again. Theology being your intellectual grasp of the truth, psychology referring to your experiential grasp of it, how it changes you, how it solidifies you, how it reinforces you internally. And so the theology comes first, though. 
You have to get the theology down while you wait for the psychology, while you wait for the way you feel to catch up to what you know, right? That's a lot of life. You got, there's stuff you know, and then you got to ask God, you got to pray and ask God to help, you know, what you feel catch up to what you know. When C.S. Lewis lost his wife in death, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. It really, it really shook him, and here's what he, he said. He said, I'm not, I don't think, in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe dreadful things about him. He said, the conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. See, as I've said, God is, in this long section of Isaiah's prophecy here, correcting the dreadful things we come to believe about him when we're going through suffering. And what is God really like? And the answer here, as I've already said, is that he is a redeemer. You know, I will be with you. That promise is not just theology. It's also psychology. It's something that you can know that, that God means for you to know by firsthand experience. God, this sounds, so, this sounds so basic, but this really trips us up. God is not an idea. Right? Okay. He's a person. So when he says, I will be with you, that's not a theological idea. That somehow you grab a hold of an idea and you hold on to that idea as you're experiencing something. He means you're meant to experience me person to person. Like you're meant to experience my person. But the, but the reality is you got to get the theology down first. So there's so much here. Oh, there's so much that I'm overwhelmed by it. But we're going to focus on God the Redeemer where he says, verse 1, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. And your mind, and there are really two things. First, God the Redeemer is an image that describes his heart of love. To redeem something is to buy it back through a sacrificial payment. So Fleming Rutledge has said the principal idea of redemption is that of cost to God. So when we see the word redeem, it should make us think about how costly we are to love. Do you know you're costly to love? If you don't, turn to your spouse and ask them. Turn to your brother or your sister and ask him or her. We are costly to love. Our salvation was expensive because our sin was so great. And yet God willingly, he joyfully paid the price. That's what redeemer means. That's what the word redeemer means. He rescued us at great personal cost, which means if he was willing to do that, it means he must really love us. We were expensive to love and yet he paid the price because we are of such great value to him. So look at it in verses 40 and 3 and 4 in chapter 43. He said, I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you. Would you put your eyes on that if you didn't? Can you look at it? I just want you to see it. I gave, I did this in exchange for you, verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Now, full stop, right? Those are like, that's just full stop right there. Do you believe what he just said? Do you believe that you are precious to God, that you are of such value to him that he would gladly pay whatever the cost for you because he loves you? There are many places in the Bible where we're told that God loves us, where it's argued out for us, where we're called the beloved. But did you know that this is the only place in the whole of Scripture where I love you is on God's lips? I love you, he says. 
Now, those verses, of course, take us right into the heart of the gospel, don't they? There is an exchange. Do you see that word? It says, I gave Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Again, verse 4, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Now, in the Old Testament, you would redeem someone or something through an exchange. You would offer an, a replacement to be sacrificed to God. So every firstborn son in Israel, for example, in order to redeem the firstborn, they would offer a sacrifice as the redemption price. And so there would be a sacrifice made in the place of that firstborn son by which the firstborn would be redeemed. The sacrifice for their life. That's the idea here. And of course, that takes us to the heart of the gospel, which tells us that we're all sinners, deserving of death. But God so loved us that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us by sacrificing himself on the cross in our place so that God could then say of all those who believe, of you and me, you are mine. So what's the psychology that comes from that theology? What does it do to your fear? Well, you measure the worth of something by what you're willing to part with to get it, don't you? You measure the worth of something by what you're willing to pay for it, by what you're willing to part with, Whatever other treasure you have, you'll gladly part with it to have the thing that you so desperately desire. Well, let's think about this. God gave his son for you. That is the measure of his love for you. There's nothing that can cause him to stop loving you, not even you. There is no expiration date on God's love for you. It is, as Jonathan Edwards said, an ocean without shores or bottom. And being loved like that, let me say it this way, being loved by a love like that can fill you with an unshakable joy and peace. So much so that it really can begin to, in small ways that become greater over time, make you unafraid. But there's a second thing. God the Redeemer is an image that describes his heart of love for us, but it's also an image that describes his power to turn any bad thing to good. Think about the way we use the word redeem. Uh, we talk about a football player who has a bad first half but then has a great second half, and we say he redeemed himself, right? Or we describe a book or a film as redemptive when it addresses the hard parts of life but then gives us hope by offering a happy ending of some kind. There's some unexpected turn of events to good. And so when God refers to himself as a redeemer, he not only is disclosing his heart, he's also highlighting for us his power. He is able to transform bad into good, weakness into strength, evil into triumph for his people. And this is the Isaiah 41 passage. It's my favorite. I know I say it every week. This is one of my favorites. I couldn't pass it up because these verses have just meant so much to me in the darker moments of my life, throughout my life, uh, where he says in verses 18 and 19, he says, I will open rivers on the bare heights and make the wilderness a pool of water, the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive, and I will set the, in the desert the cypress, the plain, in the pine together. Now you read that and you begin to realize immediately this is miraculous, right? You see how that's just, he's saying I can do miraculous things. I can do things that are, are not explained by any other thing other than my power. I mean, they're miraculous beginnings. Water coming from bare heights. That's just, that just means there's water coming from places where there is no water. <laughs> it's to a miraculous extent. It's not just a small stream. It's springs. It's gushing water. Homosassa Springs, I looked this up this week. Homosassa gushes one billion gallons of water every day. Pools of water. He's saying springs. I can take the desert and turn it into a spring that gushes billions of gallons of water. So there's miraculous beginnings and there's a miraculous extent. But then 
Also notice the miraculous effect. The trees mentioned here, let me just give you a clue. These trees don't grow in the desert. When's the last time you were traveling through, you know, Arizona or wherever the deserts are out there? And, oh, look, there's a cypress tree. No, we have cypress trees, right? Where, where, where did the cypress trees grow? They grow out of the water. They literally grow up out of the lakes. He's saying, no, cactus maybe in the desert. But here he says, no, I'll put the cypress tree. Shade trees, all different kinds, growing up together. It's God's way of saying, listen, I am able to take a desert and turn it into a garden. So here's my question. What desert are you walking through? Do you know, do you believe that God is able to miraculously transform it into pools of water and shade trees? But be careful. Be careful even as you ask that question and answer it. Don't forget the not yet of God's promises. Remember, we live in a fallen world that is being redeemed. It's being redeemed. We're not there yet. It's a work in progress still. And this is consummation language here in Isaiah 35. And by that I mean consummation language. Language about what God's going to ultimately do inevitably at the end of time when all things truly work together for good. But not until the end. Not until Jesus comes again. Um, Tim Keller, who has meant a lot to us, his church is named Redeemer as well, and that's not coincidence. But um, he, you know, he's battling with with um, pancreatic cancer, and he did an interview recently, and they just asked him, "What's the what's the big lesson um, that you've learned from this? What would you say to people uh, about what you've learned?" And he said, "Listen, here's what I would say: Jesus is alive. Everything's going to be okay. Amen. Jesus is alive." Everything's going to be okay. The end will be an ultimate resurrection. Life springing up out of death. Good rising up out of evil. Deserts turning into gardens. But Jesus is alive. Which means there will also be resurrections along the way. There will be previews by God's grace that we get of how it will be in the end. They don't always come. They don't always come, but sometimes they do. And you put those two things together, right? God is able to take the desert and make it a garden. And with some things, he does. But with all things, he will. Right? With some things, he does. What he says here in Isaiah 41. With all things, he will. Eventually, ultimately, inevitably. So again, what's the psychology that comes from that theology? Well, the Bible's word here is hope, that you can always be hopeful. Even in grief. Even in grief. Grief, but grief with hope. And so, ask him. I mean, ask him. Go to him and say, God, I'm in this desert. Can you turn it into a garden? And maybe he will. But even if he doesn't, stay hopeful. Because we do know this, his love is undefeated. And here's the last thing. I know we need to be finished. He is weak to your weakness. You should know that too. He's weak to your weakness. Look at the, last, the first and the last verse in Isaiah 41. He says, when the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, I, the Lord, will answer them. And then down in verse 20, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. God loves to put his love and power on display in your weakness to teach you to stop relying on yourself and to trust in him instead. And you should remind him of that when you talk to him about the deserts you're enduring. Are you weak? Is that why you're so nervous? Are you weak? 
Maybe that's why you're so nervous. Can I make a suggestion to you? If you feel weak, if life feels overwhelming, could it be, is it possible that he has you right where he wants you? Right where he is most able and most likely to do something wonderful. Dane Ortland, in his book, General Lily, has this great phrase. <laughs> uh, he says, if you're in Christ, you have been eternally invincibilized. Now, I don't even know if that's a word. I think it's likely that it's not. But you get the point, don't you? If you are in Christ, you have been eternally invincibilized. So don't be afraid. Instead, sing along with the hymn writer. And this is a long one, but it's so good. Listen to this. This is a, a J. Hart hymn from the Gatsby hymnal. He says, How wondrous are the works of God displayed through all the world abroad. Immensely great, immensely small, yet one strange work exceeds them all. He formed the sun, fair fount of light, the moon and stars to rule the night. But night and stars and moon and sun are little works compared with one. He rolled the seas and spread the skies, made valleys sink and mountains rise. The meadows clothed with native green and bade the rivers glide between. But what are seas or skies or hills or verdant vales or gliding rills? What are they? To wonders man was born to prove, the wonders of redeeming love. It is far beyond what words express, what saints can feel or angels guess. The highest heavens are short of this, tis deeper than the vast abyss, tis more than thought can e'er conceive or hope expect or faith believe. Almighty God sighed human breath, the Lord of life experienced death. How it was done we can't discuss, but this we know, t'was done for us. Blessed with this faith, then let us raise our hearts in love, our voice in praise. All things to us must work for good for whom the Lamb has shed his blood. Trials may press of every sort. They may be sore. They will be short. We now believe, but soon shall view the greatest glories God can show. Amen? Pray with me. So, Father, as we now prepare our hearts to come to this table this morning, we would say to you, we believe. But would you help our unbelief? We know that is the opportunity that you give to us. And it's hard, it's so hard to, to think of our fear as rebellion, as sin. But it is, you say so over and over and over again, it is, a, is an affront to your goodness and your greatness. It is a stubborn refusal to believe what you have said over and over again is true. And so we confess, it's right that we confess that we still can be so captive to fear and think such dreadful thoughts of you. Forgive us and come now. Make yourself known to us. Open our eyes that we might see. Open our ears that we might truly hear. Open our hearts that we might really believe you when you say, though you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Though you go through the fire, you'll not be burned because I have redeemed you. I love you. You're mine. It's going to be okay. But we need help. And so thank you that in your 
generosity and wisdom to us, you have given us this opportunity to celebrate this meal together. Help us now to believe as we gather around this table and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's great. And so here's what we do at the end of our service. There's a benediction that we pronounce, and here's what this means. That if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then he took upon himself all that you were, and he himself was treated as you are deserved to be treated by God upon the cross in suffering uh, God's holy wrath against sin. But if you believe, then that means that you now get all that he deserves. All of the love that is his, all of the status with God that is his, all of the, the promise of God that is his is now yours. That's what these words mean, that you can go knowing that death is dead. I love that line, right? Death is dead. Isn't that great? Uh, and so we can go boldly. We can go out from this place boldly because we believe that we don't go alone, that we never go alone, that he promises to be with us and he is a redeemer. So go following the redeemer. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Go in his peace.